0: What's up everybody, we are back with another episode of the EAX Performance Podcast This is your host Chris McNamara, I am joined today by the young fit Jeremy Kane And then this week we have a special guest with uh, Mr. Brian Rowan One of our longtime EAX athletes, uh, gauntlet competitor, the man, the myth, the legend So Brian, thanks for being with us today
1: Appreciate it, Chris. Happy to
0: be on. All right, guys. So this week's um, topic is is one that is kind of near and dear to us in terms of some of our our best athletes, our everyday athletes, and ourselves have dealt with, and that is the topic of injury, specifically dealing with injuries as an athlete and then how we uh, change our programming to address injury prevention and then also coming back from injury. And I think one of the first things I want to start with is, is the concept that uh, injury is a bad thing. and then I also want to start with the concept that um, injuries you can prevent them totally. There are some mindsets within the fitness space and culture right now that fitness pain free, train without pain, all these other things. Completely agree. But when we're talking about with athletes who are doing anything of significant measure, um, they're going to be injuries are going to happen. What we were trying to minimize through our programming is the severity and then the length of time that and duration that they miss from training.
2: And there's also a culture out there that if you're not injured or, you know what I mean, like on the verge of injury or pain, you're not training hard Yeah, it's a though. badge of honor. It's a badge <laughs> of honor. Yeah. Like walking into the gym with tape all over yourself, like it's not what we want.
0: Yeah. And so that's that's it. So let me give, the, give you guys a backstory. Um, we're going to have her on, so I'm going to share her story ahead of time. But uh, one of my longest running athletes uh, and good friends, it, Lauren, just recently got some news that she has extra cervical ribs. So she's got two extra little riblets coming off of her cervical spine, her neck. Um, and for years, we've been dealing with that in training in terms of Uh, trying to figure out why some movements are just naturally harder for her, but she's also uh, at the top end of the game. I'm talking for a female that snatches 200 pounds. I'm talking, you know, 30-ring muscle-ups, sub-five minutes. Like, a lot of the things that we we normally look at in the competitive CrossFit space is saying, like, those are good indicators of being elite. Uh, But the problem with her is there were just some things that weren't clicking. So she was coming off of a pretty good event down at Wadapalooza, um, competing against a beast field of females and did well. So we had a discussion about, Hey, now's the time to reset before can West. She had about four months, five months, Um, get yourself tuned up and then we'll take it from there. And so in all this, uh, we were trying to adjust some shoulder issues and stuff just wasn't adding up right. So physical therapists would say, Oh, it's rotator cuff pathology, shoulder pathology. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. To me it sounds like thoracic outlet syndrome, but obviously go see a doctor. I'm gonna stay within my realm, stay within my scope of practice. So she went and saw a series of doctors and you know it stumped a lot of them too, and she eventually found out this diagnosis. And so, you know, as a coach recently, and then then once again as her friend with some tough conversations like you know, we had to talk about injuries that happen. You know, this one I wouldn't classify as a true injury. She literally has extra bones <laughs> in her body. Out of your um, control. Yeah, out of my control. It wasn't the programming. or wasn't anything else. But, you know, I still want to help her as a human. And that's one thing that, that has been pretty significant recently. So, Brian here uh, was a wrestler all through high school and college. Wrestled at West Point, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, have you had any significant injuries in, in your career?
1: Yes, Um, Cross the board, torn, PCL, both of my knees. Yeah. Um, those are pretty much the major ones. I mean, shoulder issues um, on both sides at different points, but no, nothing torn, just knees torn both sides. Yeah. My was there
2: like a, for all those injuries, was there like a common factor in like what led to them maybe that you could think of? Or is it just kind of like freak accidents that happened?
1: Both were kind of like freak accidents. I mean, when you tear your PCL, it's pretty hard. Yeah. Um, to tear that, it's yep. just you get put in a weird scramble position and your knee you gets yanked out. Oh. Um, so it wasn't really um, anything kind of leading up to it.
0: Yeah, and so that's where you know myself too. Like I've had uh, rotator cuff injuries on both sides, weightlifting plus fighting and some other stuff. Um, torn bicep, skydiving. Torn PCL, skydiving. Uh, you know, torn hamstring while while <laughs> <Plays awful>. uh,
2: <laughs> playing <laughs>
0: playing some high intensity softball, um, you know, just across the board, same thing. And so I, I think that's where, you know, having dealt with it personally and then professionally coaching people, you know, I know both the psychological impact it can have on someone while they're dealing with it, but also coming back from injury. And then at the same time, I also know when, when it happens, some of our athletes look to us like, hey, why'd this happen? You know, could have been prevented. And so I think the first thing we need to classify is, is injury types, right? So we've got, we do have catastrophic injuries, the ones you were talking about. Um, you know, where you're, you are wrestling, you are competing, you are in the moment um, or even just training to compete. And they just happen. They're fluke things. As much as we wish we could predict them, we can't. So when there's catastrophic injuries, I think one of the bigger things we need to realize is like they're going to happen in, in, in sports where they're high contact and high intensity. But as coaches, what can we do to build a more durable and resilient athlete on the front end and then, how do we get that athlete back to a high level on the back end? So that's the stuff I sort of look at.
2: Yeah, I think um, when it comes to those two, as a coach, you're kind of mentoring people as well. Like you're like, it's easy for people to say when it, when we get into the other injury types of like over programming or movement mechanics, but when it's a freak accident, like you can't control it. Um, I think that's one thing people always want to do is they want to start blaming themselves for stuff or blaming other things and and something you just can't control, like your PCL. <laughs> like, if you're in a wrestling match, and all of a sudden your PCL goes, or you're skydiving, you know, like, and, and things kind of go as planned, but just stuff happens, and we have to be okay with that. Yeah. Um, and that's where I, then I kind of get into, like, mechanical movement faults. Like, that's where, as a coach, we can start looking at movement patterns, and then that could be a precursor for injury. Yeah, and that's where,
0: that's where you know, the the other end of that, where the crowd that we talked about earlier is, like, you know, fitness pain free and movement without pain, all the other thing. And, and I do completely agree. Um, when I try and program and do those things, pain is never an indicator of a good workout for me. In fact, it's, it's an indicator of poor, poor like programming on my part. So it can be structural or mechanical, but it can also be people who have a pain addiction to like the intensity of a workout, right? So we've, we talk about physical injuries, but there's also some, some psychological injuries that happen when you are all intensity all the time. You become a, a stress junkie, right? Intensity addicted. And that has a very real profile biochemically, right? We can look at cortisol. We can look at all these other things that show someone who is always at high intensity all the time has a, a metabolic injury, if you want to look at it that way, or yeah. hormonal injury. And people forget about that because it's fun. It's fun to be like, yeah, man, I grinded out a billion reps today. And it's like, what are we doing? Why?
2: You know, There has to be a fluctuation like we, we talk about in our other episodes, like the human body is complex, right? <laughs> so yeah. if you're just redlining all day long, you're not allowing those natural fluctuations to happen. So that's when we start to see hormone imbalances, metabolic fatigue, and then you just see, like, stagnation across, like, programming. So, months and months go down the road, you're not getting any faster, you're not getting any stronger, what you're getting is you're just getting more used to sucking, and then, like, sure, maybe a little bit stronger, if at all. Uh, but in the long term, you can't sustain it, and then you just end up blowing your
0: shoulders out or blowing something out. And that's that's where I think back to the pain thing, like, to me, pain's a late indicator, and it's it's a the number one hitter of performance, right? So... I just put a guy through a a step test, a 30-minute step test on the bike, looked at his muscle oxygen saturation, all the other stuff while we're doing it, and, like, I could see the pain face set in in real time with his actual physiology showing it. And so that's an indicator in training to me, like, oh, I'm not ever dosing pain. I'm dosing a stimulus right before that to make it you can go longer and faster and better before the feeling of pain sets in or the perception of how hard something is. Same thing on, on mechanical dysfunction, right? So when I'm looking at, at what I was talking about earlier, we've got catastrophe, like Brian was talking about with his PCLs and I'm, I'm talking about my stuff, but we've also got just movement related problems that I do think can be diagnosed and taken care of early on. And so that's, that's where with programming, I try and focus. And then with, with Lauren's thing, like we've got some pathological issues. She, she grew some extra ribs. No, she's already, always had them. Um, but other people do have pathology, and we can't discount that either. Um, but for me, where I might mainly live, you know, the ninety percent of problems I'm gonna see is related to people who don't move well.
2: Yep, I'll use myself an example. I tore my ACL meniscus. It was a non-contact, which generally means essentially I stuck, changed directions, and my knee just went the other way. Um, typically, if we look at someone like Robert Griffin III and whatever draft combine he was in, when he does his vertical jump. His knees, like his knee valgus, just in a jump alone, I think someone measured it. It was insane. And, and when you look at a movement pattern fault, you already know he's maybe weak in the glutes that are stabilizing the hip, which then stabilize the knee. Dude's torn his ACLs like three or four times. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I know I was doing my internship, I think the year after RG3 got drafted. And so I was down at Exos, and I'm watching guys like Jadavian Clowney, um, you know, do his vertical leap I'm watching some of these other guys do it and then you'd watch RG3 who had I think he had like a 42 or 43 inch vert something huge, like that and it was actually on a subway commercial like they showed him doing it but when you watched it you didn't have to be an expert in anything his knees looked like they were knock knee touching at the bottom of his load up like he'd load for his jump and then go up and same thing when he was landing and those are those precursors that we can see in training those movement patterns that were like I can't tell you when It's going to happen, but it is going to happen. You're going to tear your knee.
2: Yep, and I think when we get into the topic, kind of the overarching topic of the whole podcast, which is how to prevent it, Um, from a coach's standpoint, it's my favorite to run people through drills that will make that stronger. So they always come, oh, I got knee pain. It's like, okay, well, let's see if your glutes are firing correctly to then stabilize the knee. And I'll send them through, say, a single leg squat progression. And they're like lighting up on fire at like 10% of their body weight, which is not a lot. That's an indicator for me that we need to continually progress that because you're just not strong enough to stabilize properly and move properly. So I think a lot of people, if you don't have an experienced coach, you're looking at a squat pattern like, oh, knees track over the toes, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can the body can compensate really, really well and it may look okay structurally but then you isolate the knee and go okay let's do a, a rear foot elevated split squat and they're like struggling to hold any sort of tempo upright posture extension of the left hip flexion of the right hip and be able to activate the glute properly that is running and cutting right there yeah so what that's the like? that's that's a perfect
0: example and, and like a segue as to with brian here today like so brian you know for the audience uh, that doesn't have a familiar background with Brian like Brian has been one of our you know EX performance like group class members for a long time um probably close to a year something like that yeah. and um you know recently was like hey man I want to take it to the next level I want to compete he went down to Wadapalooza with us um jumped right into the gauntlet something that you know Experience I wouldn't even do people. yeah <laughs> and it's like let's throw down he we have some funny stories he is he is uh <laughs> In our mind, he is Tia, Claire, Toomey, and Rich Froning's training partner. Because if you guys would have seen the warm-up area in back, my man Brian is hitting his, his wall balls and his toes to bar right in between. Tia, Claire, Rich Froning, and his team. Brooke Wells. Brooke Wells. <laughs> and then there's Brian. There's, there's B-Row up there. So it was awesome. Um, but, you know, as we, as we talk about Brian, like, yeah, he's coming into us with an injury history, right? So one of the first indicators of a future injury is a prior injury. So we know that people walking into our gym on day one or hitting us up for our mode athletes, like one of the biggest questions we can ask them is, what have you torn before? And so when I first started coaching and I first started doing assessments, man, they were really in depth. And I used to think I could predict injury and have all the answers. I'm going to tell the audience right now. I'm going to tell Brian right now. Anybody that says they can absolutely predict injuries and prevent injuries through their programming is a major red flag for bullshit. Like you need to run away from that person as far and as fast as you can. So we try and we try and get bookends of movement, bookends of performance, kind of like Jeremy was saying, but I'm not going to look Brian in his eye and say, "Hey man, you won't be injured." <laughs> like that that'd be that'd be shortsighted and a lie. You know, and and the thing is he's training to compete. He was going to do Beach Town throwdown, that that got pushed back, do some other stuff. And so when you are training at that level, I'm going to say it. Injury is 100% guaranteed. Now, it's the level. Like, if if you tear your hands while doing pull-ups, that's technically an injury, right? But we know you're going to work around that. You know you're going to come back. Pop if, rib out. <laughs> yeah, if you pop a rib out like Jeremy front squatting not too long ago, it's going to happen. But we need to build slowly so that's what you don't jump right to, mm-hmm. right? Like, you don't want to jump right into the volume um, and intensity that will guarantee you to get injured. And I just did a post about this the other day called Hurry Up and Wait. Like, as these gym opens, I guarantee you the physical therapy world is going to see a spike in injuries because these folks who don't control their own programming because they buy it, these other people who just copy and paste it off of competitor blogs, they're going to go back to stuff that is going to injure their athletes because they don't control the
2: volume and intensity that their athletes need. And it could be – I think it's It's going to be – when we, I agree with you. I think it's going to be interesting to see, though, how subtle it is because something as simple as a front rack. You take someone that probably didn't have a, your average GPP fitness competitor, or fitness individual, not competitor, probably doesn't have a established front rack Brian, that well. Brian here's just <laughs> recently
0: getting his front rack. Uh, you know, he's been doing it for a while, but his, his mobility, we've been working on it.
2: And then all these gyms, I think, are going to open up in like day one through five. At some point, there'll be some sort of clean in there. And they're going to be tasking this person who hasn't done anything for six weeks to then slam themselves into a front rack. And that's where things are going to go wrong. And that's where I think, you know,
0: we want empowered, like, aware athletes. And so we want our athletes to ask when they come back in, like, hey, is this smart is this intelligent? So part of this is for our athletes saying, hey, I don't think that's smart to go full speed right away. Zero to 60 real freaking quick is not a good idea. Right? So for them, the athlete to say, Hey, I should probably do some positional work coming into this. I should probably do some repatterning of the major movements. The power output will come later. There's no doubt about that. So I can tell you right now, the gym, when my gym, when they come back and they get into their class stuff, there's gonna be a a long, you know, three, four, five, six week focus on just that. We're gonna get into like slow tempo work. Show me you can own the pattern. Show me you can squat well, and we'll build horsepower later. Show me you can own your positions safely, and then later on, we'll add the power rather the horsepower. So, you know, EX yeah. fam, expect that. We're not maxing out. We're not going crazy for, for quite a while.
2: Even so, then, we'd start taking for after the six weeks, right? I'm going to use Brian's example. I program for Brian right now. <laughs> he struggles with some positions just from tight being tight. Um... His program right now isn't looking like anything maximal effort because we talked about today when you're working out. We have to be able to establish good motor patterns through lighter weight and be able to express that power efficiently before we start going heavier. And I think oftentimes the biggest indicator I see from novice, intermediate, to advanced and elite athletes are... The novice and intermediate athlete will take movements, say squat, snatch, clean, wall balls, running, even um, any movement matter you think of, and the form changes with the intensity. And so, what do I mean by that? If you take an elite, advanced athlete doing power cleans, their sixty percent power clean looks the exact same as their ninety percent power clean. A novice to intermediate athlete, they compensate or they their form falls off at lighter loads because they think they could just lift it and, like, it counts type thing. Like, oh, the bar got to my shoulder. It counts. Same thing with running. Their running form gets a lot less slouch. So they're not holding posture. They're not staying tight. They're not breathing well at a slower pace because they're like, oh, just going for a, a slow jog. All those things compound and, and lead to them when you go to express maximum intensity. That's when you notice these advanced <laughs> elite level athletes can do it and stay injury-free, and then you get all the, the novice intermediate athletes that struggle to lift, let's say, the maximum effort because they just can't get into positions. Well, you didn't practice the position.
0: Yep, and that's that's exactly where you know I think uh, a guy like Brian, a good example right now, is is making the switch from our class stuff to individual programming to you know competing now, and he's coming from a high level of competition before with, yep. with where he wrestled and everything else. So a a pitfall that could happen is saying you know it's trying to speed through that part because it's boring you know what i mean like it's it is boring to build good movement mechanics is boring to build a good base and you don't see it until later like you don't see it until 6 12 18 months in that that foundation is is becoming reality and it letting you express your full potential because like you were saying man like it, a lot of athletes that i see who come back in back to that whole blank slate thing no one comes to us with a blank slate Right? So to have all these these tests and systems and be like, oh my god, your your knee internally rotates at, <laughs> at this, you know, degree and, and all these other things, like it sounds cool and it's really good for a textbook, but Brian's walking in with, with mileage on him, and we want to get him to a certain point, so we gotta find the blend between the two. And and so I'm reading a book right now, it's called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. They have this chapter that just you know blew my mind on how it compared to here in terms of they say they have a saying that say um test to fly, fly to test. And they mean about rockets, right? So like you gotta test a ton of stuff before you ever launch a rocket. Or you're gonna kill people. But at the same time, while you're flying, while you're in flight, you gotta do more testing. And so early on, admittedly in my career, I did a bunch of testing up front. I would do an FMS, I would do four days of physical testing, I would look at all these different things, and then be like, okay, let's get to working out. I have your program. But as we do four weeks, Brian's going to adapt, right? Tissue quality is going to change. His moving, his bracing, his breathing is going to change. His joint capsule, stuff like that. So every few weeks, that needs to be a touch point in terms of where are we at again? Did I give you a test before? Not a horsepower test, not a benchmark, not a whatever. Did I give you a movement quality or breathing quality test before? How's that changed with four weeks of programming? And the new Brian, the new normal of Brian is that trending the right way, or is it not? And so that kind of hit me, you know, that whole test to, test to fly, fly to test thing. It applies to our athletes, man, because as they compete, as Lauren um, min- I mentioned earlier, she was just coming off a very great competition at Wadapalooza. We are really hitting our stride, and we decided to take a-, a good relook under the hood, just where she was at, so we could maximize for Can West. And mind you, like I think she qualified third or fourth overall you know, yeah. elite female for Can West with those other things going on. So it's all relative. So Brian coming in with his background, Jeremy with his background, my background, we gotta we gotta test while we fly as well. You know, we gotta keep the test going. So that way we're not just programming for some some hypothetical person, textbook person that never comes into reality.
2: I think you hit on it earlier when you kinda of, it's kinda of like the idea of like know your role as a coach. I think oftentimes coaches out there want to claim they know the secret secret answer like oh this is what's going on with you i think there's a time and a place based on your knowledge (laughs) like we have some medical background in this room and then also just experience as coaches to where i think there's a time and a place to tell an athlete like hey this is what i think's going on or there's the right time and place where it's like hey you need to go get this checked out this is out of my scope this is not kind of what i do Mm -hmm. uh so you saw lauren um so we utilize Shannon at Biophysical Therapy down here so that way it, like, she can pop in, look at athletes, and give us kind of her diagnosis. and.
0: Yeah, and then that, then that's huge, man. That's, and I think that shows maturity. You know, you don't act like you have all the answers because no one does. Um, you know, so let's let's start way back at the beginning just because Brian's starting with us, you know, pretty recently in terms of being an individual athlete in the last month or so. Um, you know, when we talk about what are we testing, right? So when I'm testing someone and I use a battery of tests uh, that might look weird to some, like an outsider, like why do we do, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Like the very, very base principles I'm looking for is like what's the components of each position? Like can you squat? Can you lunge? Can you hinge? Can you press? Can you pull, right? So what are the components of that? And so what I've seen over the years is the certain tests, like an FMS, like I still use a functional movement screen as part of my toolkit, but it's not the only answer. So if someone passes an FMS with a 21 and for the audience, you can get a max score of 21. If they get a 21 out of 21, cool. But I'm not assuming they're going to be injury free. Yeah. Right. So I'm looking at the components of position and then we're going to add a little bit of load to it because that's where that one side of the coin, that one audience that's like, hey, fitness pain free. Um, we can never have fitness. We can, you know, we, we can't go past a certain level where you're going to break people, you know, injuries happen at certain speeds and loads that if you've never experienced them in training, you're definitely going to get injured when you do it in sport. But in training, we need to add a little bit of load. We need to add a little bit of respiratory demand, metabolic demand, a little bit of stress and dose it just like you would a vaccine, right? So if you had a non-contact ACL injury, A lot of times that non-contact ACL injury is like glute med weakness and some other stuff. And you're like, if you've never, looking back retrospectively, you can be like, oh, it probably was this, this, and this. But if you've never trained that in training and you have that injury, well, of course it makes sense. But if we address it upstream and try and get ahead of it, then hopefully not only do we prevent it, and we'll never know if we did or not, or we make you get back to function faster. And with a lot of my programming, that's the other thing, too, is like if it fails, if someone gets injured, what have I built within them to be resilient to get back faster?
2: Yeah, I think that's good. I think looking back at the program, because for me personally, when I look back at programs, I, if one of my athletes were to get injured, I first try and look and see if maybe it was something I did. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think oftentimes coaches want to po- point the finger, but, you know, overuse injuries is a thing. Uh, not taking deloads, not managing maybe reps and volume, even intensity. Um, so that's usually the first thing I do is I'll go back, look at the last three, four weeks, kind of see where my head was at, and then look through, like, kind of notes that I maybe can look into further detail now because I think that's part of it. If we're not measuring volume, what was the, the, the study that came out in the Olympics where the only common factor that was common among all injuries that happened in the Olympics was their training volume increased by more than 10%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you it's, it's
0: acute to chronic training workload. So yeah. like, you know, I'm going to post a bunch of these, I've got six studies I'm going to post in the show notes, um, on some of the research that I was doing for this and for other things that, that I go to all the time. And that acute to chronic workload is the number one way to injure yourself, right? Spike your training intensity and or volume within a seven-day period, more than you've done the last three weeks, right? So they looked at it for 28 days, and they were like, hey, in a seven-day window, you spiked more than about 20%. You're sevenfold more likely to get injured. Sevenfold. And so what's going to happen is people are going to come back from this quarantine, right? And they're going to go back to what they used to do. Some people are going to be smart about it. They're going to be like, I used to do one hour a day, five days a week. I'm going to come back to that. Well, if you've been doing one hour a day, three days a week, and you add one more day right out the gate, much less two, guess what you just did? You just spiked it. Instead of equalizing that across a week, equalizing that across a day, and making a much more intelligent approach to how you're returning back to training.
2: And something I always communicate with my athletes is that the most common, I would say, statement I get, especially going through now, or if I'm starting on a new phase or cycle of a goal that we want to do, um, or dropping back in. Do typically have a deload, so we come back, start ramping up intensity and volume. But the number one comment I usually get is um, like, "Oh, like I feel really good. Like I feel like I should be doing more, or something along those lines." My biggest kind of response to that is just like, "Hey, like that's where we want to feel, right? Like we want to feel good. We want to feel hungry to come back for more, because you feel that way until you don't. <laughs> and it seems pretty stupid to say, but th- at the end of the day." If you kept pushing harder and then now all of a sudden you get injured, like, now you don't feel good and now you can't train or now you happen to maybe blow a meniscus or ACL or whatever because you just want more and more and more and more instead of not getting greedy is what I kind of put it, like, attack the day for what it is, move on. There's nothing that's going to, like, get you that much
0: better. Yeah, and that's where, back to being aware and intelligent athletes, like, I want Brian here to be able to say, hey, today... 80% felt like 8,000%, not pushing it. Yeah. You know, like we don't give out ribbons here for people suffering. We've never done that. So we, we've never given it to people being like, hey man, I, I spent an hour in the garage and I could barely hit 90%. In fact, uh, in the past, I have quote unquote fired athletes for their unwillingness to back off some because my ethics as a human is not to hurt people and they will intentionally hurt themselves and be like, well, I I tweaked my elbow, tweaked my back today, but I was really going for that. And then at the end of the day too, it's also, you know, Evolution Athletics as a brand, I do not ever want it to be associated with the death by volume, death by injury, all our athletes get hurt. And so that's where I've had to have that discussion with some athletes like, Hey, respectfully love what you do. You will do great other places, but I just can't have you here because that transfers to other people. And, And my point is environment. So we don't, in our gym, allow people to, like, there's no smelling salts for for moms doing deadlift in our class, right? There, It's not a thing. There's yeah. no, um, you know, awards for people who are bloody and bleeding at the end of a workout. And, in fact, when we see it, and if, if someone is coaching a class where that happens, I, I tend to pull that coach aside and I tend to pull that athlete aside and say, hey, that's not our goal, yeah. right? I'm worried about you a year from now, five years from now, whatever. That's not our goal. And so get rid of that. so with environment, that factors in because we talk about the biopsychosocial model, right? The psychology piece that a lot of people are missing about working out in the gym can also be a downside. You want to come back in the gym and you want to you slam bars and hit PRs because there's you know hot men or women running around and it, things are flowing. I get that, but not at the cost of, of tissue or injury. So you know that's one thing with, with what we're doing here and how we're going to bring stuff back in is I'm going to monitor the training load control the environment of everybody coming back in to make it an environment that promotes long-term growth and then slowly build back into programming. That's
2: good. I think one of my biggest mistakes, I will admit as a coach sometimes, is I'll get in these conversations with athletes. They're like, oh, on my rest day, I really want to do something. Like, (laughs) I want to practice rucking. I got maybe a 12-mile ruck in a couple months. And I always my gut feeling says no, and then like eventually they'll keep asking. i like, sure, add one or two miles in, and then a week later they're injured, and I like always revert back to like, well, should have stuck with my gut because like, I knew it wasn't right type thing. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah. kind of goes into like you said, monitoring kind of the volume and load.
0: You know, and then and
2: then back to what we were saying earlier that that that's a, a
0: hormonal thing, like stress stress levels aren't peaked and really high, and then. You know, all the other stuff that that is a downstream effect of that. So that's number one. The second thing is, um, I can tell you right now when people come back to the gym and just in general, uh, we start with like building motor control and patterns first. So whether you want to call it the triphasic approach, whatever you want to call it, you know, in, any other system. Kelly Storette has a really good system on system one, two, and three movements. Joe Ken has the tier system. I don't care what you call it. We're going to come back into a learn it phase. Yeah. So it's almost going to be like kids being gone from the summer and learning how to be back in school again.
2: OPEX has their level one, level
0: two, level three, level four. there you go. So, you know, there's different movements that come with that. So we're going to be in our first phase, back to that learn it approach. We're going to do a lot of slow speed movements. We're going to do a lot of tempo work, and we're going to show complete mastery of the pattern, okay? Once we do that, then we can kind of add some some horsepower, some intensity, because we're going to do that second phase, category two movements, earn it. So show me you can do a deep five-second pause squat, at a certain percentage of your max or at a heavy level, and then we're gonna add on, add on speed uh, and reps and everything else, and then finally like, all right, that burn it, that kind of conditioning stuff, we'll build that in later. But what's the point of, of going that fast, that high intensity, if your movement sucks? Because we were talked about it earlier, most injuries come from spiking your acute chronic workloads, but they also come from poor, crappy movement. So why am I gonna burn that in, first thing away? To make members happy? there's a balance. What makes my members happy here is not being injured and results. long-term progression and results, results. measurable <laughs> results. I
2: yeah. think a lot of people also get it twisted for thinking that building movement patterns is easy. Right? Like a five, let's say we're doing five sets of three back squat with that 5 second tempo. That's what is that? 15 seconds under load. <laughs> that's, that's no a long time. Jo- that's a long time. That's yeah. no joke. So I think people will be surprised how sore they feel, but also on the back end, how strong they're getting just from building tendon strength and actually controlling the movement pattern. And then when they go to load on heavier weight, they'll be surprised. So that's that's how we're going to do it
0: to, to build people back in, knees them back in, and that's how we kind of program most of our programming. You know, give that kind of dose-responsive exercise, rest, repeat, see how it goes, um, and then just change that over time and hopefully keep people from getting injured. But uh, being... Um, completely open and and candid here, like we know it's going to happen Whether with our individuals competing, with some of our folks coming back, injuries do happen. But the magnitude, like how bad they are, and the amount and duration of time missed from training, which is one of the main things we look at, um, is a significant concern for us too, and one thing we really track. So let's talk about uh, shifting gears here to when people get injured. So Brian here, he's with us. He's obviously got the PCL things going on. Um, well, way back in the day. So Brian tweaks his shoulder or something like that. One of the things that, that I like to do with my athletes and especially with a, with a one-on-one dialogue is back away, but still train. Right. And so I think, you know, one of the, well, there's a field of research on all this, but like unilateral work helps the other side. Um, staying consistently moving helps you heal, um, from a blood flow perspective and, and mentally for a lot of our athletes, But when we look at training, we look at it as a continuum. It's not strength and conditioning on one end, and it's not rehab on the other. There's always some degree of each one on both ends. So when Brian was coming back from his PCL stuff, when you were coming back from your knee injuries, when I've come back from my injuries, I never stop training, whether it's aerobic work, band work, something else for the rest of the body, so I don't prevent atrophy and everything else. And so it doesn't take me really long to get back from uh, an injury on my shoulder I'm still squatting and doing other things. So understanding those mechanics are huge, and understanding the interplay between the other two is huge.
2: And then you get into the the prehab, rehab topic of, let's say, it is a knee injury. Well, we can, if you're able to walk, which majority of knee injuries, once the initial phase kind of goes away, you can do. Um, You then start building, let's say, glutes, hamstrings, maybe some quad contractions. Um, Therefore, when you go to get surgery... There's research that shows that if you do proper prehab, it comes back faster. Yep, and that's where
0: you know for me, it's it's back to the the one in the spectrum with with the crowd who's like you know fitness pain free never ever have, ever go to pain never go to to discomfort that sort of thing. Well, if Brian's coming back from PCL injury. You're coming back from your thing. There's an element of fear. There's an element of fear with repeating that movement, that speed, that thing, right? We've got football players who had pretty drastic lower leg injuries, right? And they're going to come back, and they're going to step on the field next year, hopefully. I mean, corona-dependent. They're good physically. (laughs) But there's going to be an element of fear with that. And if we never take them up to and a little bit beyond the demands that might have caused that injury, then we're never going to get that fear out of them. Now, his was a helmet to the leg, but at the same time, he's going to have to go fast. He's going to be flying around the football. He's going to be doing other stuff. If we don't build a physical skill set that builds his psychological skill set, we're doing a disservice as coaches for Lauren. She's going to have to completely forget about where she was at as an athlete because this is going to be three months for one side, three months from the other side, some significant surgery. So if she's comparing herself to what she was before, we're never going to get maximal training value because she's always going to be trying to chase things. So the conversation I had with her this morning was, Hey, we're going to take this day by day. We're not going to set any constraints on ourselves, And if it takes a year, if it takes two years, whatever, we're going to get you back. But don't compare yourself to the old way until it's time. So when she comes back in on day one, I told her, have a beginner's mindset. Every day is like the first day you started CrossFit. Every day is a new chance for a PR. There is no, hey, I'm chasing lifetime PRs. It's post-surgery PR. You know, and that way
2: and doing Gabby.
0: She, yeah, she can get those little goals, those little victories that will help with long-term return back to function. And that's even with Brian. So Brian here has got I don't know, I don't know, a mobility of a 60-year-old in his front rack. <laughs> Is that fair Brian?
1: It's probably a little lenient. Well, probably
0: <laughs> probably a little lenient. So, you know, doing a bunch of work on his front rack to get him to move better now kind of boring. But if we put him in a in a workout uh, for the beach town throwdown where he's got to be in the, in a front rack and he's never gone there in training, there's going to be an element of fear. That's going to change breathing mechanics. It's going to change the way that his body puts out horsepower. So we have to get him used to that in training. Now I will say, and people have heard it before, there's no such thing as perfect form, right? Like you don't have perfect form in your front rack and we know that, but we're not going to hide from it. So we're going to find those bookends of movement, we're going to find those corners of movement keep you safe, but you got to build some reps there and build some time there uh just so that you're not overextending on game day and that will cause an injury. So, you know, that's that's one thing. Um the next thing is the uh whole concept of where you feel the pain may not be where it's caused from, right? Yeah. And that's where you know, sometimes I do take issue with people coming in with KT tape on that they self-applied with all these soft instrument tools with everything else going on. And they're like, my knee hurts. So I'm going to do 45 minutes of foam rolling and I'm going to, you know, wrap it up. I'm going to tape it up. I'm going to, you know, buy industrial strength, Biofreeze, and we're just going to get through this. And it's like, is it really the cause? Have you taken it further with an assessment and diagnosis from a professional? No. Okay. What can I do as a coach? Like you were getting at earlier. Well, okay, look at that. Their hip mechanics or their yeah. ankle mechanics are horrible. And then you wonder why your knee hurts. <laughs> and so, you know, I've heard the saying before, like, you know, where, where the rat chews is uh, – where the rat gets in is, is not always where it chews or something like that. And what that means is, like, where you feel the pain might not be the, the underlying cause. It might be a downstream effect. So if you've got poor hip function or poor ankle function – then when the knee that's supposed to be stable under movement moves and it's got a bunch of laxity now because it's trying to build you or buy you more range of motion, of course it's going to hurt there. So if we take off the KT tape, if we take a step back from all the foam rolling for 45 minutes and Theraguns and we say, hey, let's get your ankle moving better, let's load you differently in your squat, oh, look, magically your knee pain goes away because you're using it like it's intended to be.
2: I think from a coaching standpoint as well, if you're relying on those factors such as KT tape, a Theragun warm up for 20 minutes, then some bands around your joints just to get into a air squat, I think from a programming perspective, something needs to change. Um, that's one of my favorite conversations to have with new athletes or even athletes that maybe aren't doing our programming but just kind of want to nerd out on some stuff and they start asking me questions. Ah, I can't squat, there's no way. It's like I've taken 50 to 60 year olds and putting them into squats like (laughs) you can do it I think what the biggest thing is is people don't want to take a step back and work positional work at a lighter load or even body weight because they're so tight um, to earn that position to be able to express that power and so then they go to put on 225 on a back squat and they're like see I can't back squat my knee hurts it's like oh boy, you can't even do an air squat properly. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's that's exactly it. And like
0: I said, there's no perfect movement, you know, there's no perfect form, there's no perfect technique, but there are bookends of, like, optimal movement. Yeah. And so when we look at that, we're like, okay, we can kind of see, you know, you're getting by, but we could clean this stuff up. Then, when we add load and we add speed to it, does it stay the same, you know? It's like, okay, my knees only hurt when I'm doing Olympic lifting. And it's like, okay, well... You've got a bunch of extension there. Does it hurt at the bottom of your knee? Oh, okay. Maybe we've got patellar tendonitis. We've got something else going on. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But it's like, hey, what about when we're squatting, when we're doing other stuff, slow, full range of motion? Nope. Okay, well, that can kind of cue us in on what's going on. Now, to, to flip that around, like, I do use a bunch of sliding surface techniques with all my athletes, right? Because we're not going to change joints much. That just that doesn't happen. From a cartilage standpoint, from the... The tissue that surrounds a joint, you're not going to have much short-term effects on a joint. You're not going to change your spinal mechanics. You're not going to change, you know, how some of those things feel. But I can change some of the sliding surfaces. So, like, first thing, hydrate. Like yeah. a lot of people forget hydration is mobility work. How hydrated you are and how how well you uh, attack your nutrition plan is mobility work. Period. Flip that around. Like then we get into the gym. You're well hydrated. Your tissue isn't just gummed up. You know, it isn't leather. Well, yeah, now we can get into some of the Something simple as contract and relax. Like some people are just so stuck in a hip hinge, um, you know, hip forward position because they sit at a desk all day. And then you want to come back in and you want to do Olympic lifts and you want to wear your back hurts. You know, some people are, are just stuck in these weird positions driving. Like I've got some people who drive. I'm looking right at Brian right here. Brian drives for work quite a bit one leg different from the other, you know, arms shipping and shoulders spine, shifted. Yep, hips. exactly. And then he comes back in. It's like, "Hey Brian, I want you to front squat heavy." Well, then that might be a guy where we do some, you know, PNF or AIS work is is what it's called. Okay? That doesn't work. Now let's try some tack and floss stuff, yeah. right? Let's try some our good friend Dan runs ruck wrap. Let's try some ruck wrap on you. But it shouldn't be a default, you know what I mean? So have those tools. Every one of my tactical athletes goes to their events with at least two rolls of ruck wrap at least one form of soft tissue tool a lot of times it's just mm-hmm. one of those mobility balls or whatever um but there's a time and place for them not all the time and the last thing we talk about you know we talked about the theraguns we talked some other stuff is like pressure waving so some of my more advanced athletes and some stuff i do personally if, if you want to look it up if the audience wants to look it up is is like you know uh functional range conditioning dr Andrew Espino. He talks a lot about it in terms of like knowing what your active and passive range of motion is for the day. Every day is a new set point. So we'll do these end range liftoffs. We'll do these, you know, pails and rails where they're doing circular movements of the joint, find out where they're at for that day. But it's not every day in, every day out because if they have to walk into the gym and do 45 minutes of that stuff, I put that on the coach. I put that on me yeah. because I'm not measuring training load and intensity and movement like I should. Yeah, I mean, he pretty much nailed it. <laughs> yeah, so you know that's that's kind of uh, how we approach it, and so the last thing I'd say is is for people either dealing with an injury um, way in the past or, or recent, or you know, coaches that that are going to deal with athletes with injuries later on, it just accept that it's going to happen. Don't don't take that as a free rein to say, oh, we're going to work out till we get injured. No, it's not. That's not it either, but. It's being, it's the difference between being reactionary and having a response. So if I have a whole protocol for someone coming back from ACL injuries, or if I have a whole protocol from someone who just tweaks their shoulder, has a, has a sore elbow, then as soon as it happens, I can go into action, right? Mm -hmm. I've got a response laid out. We've got already, instead of just, oh my God, someone's injured. Let's make stuff up on the fly. And that's that reactive approach. I'm not a big fan of that. So have a toolbox, you know what I mean? Have a toolbox of of you know muscular dynamic stuff, so stretching and in-range conditioning, all that stuff. Have something for your joints, the joint openers, the, the ruck wrap bands, the whatever, any of those things, sliding surfaces. But if you don't have a toolbox to pull from, when it happens, and it will, you're going to be caught unprepared.
2: Yeah, I think from a coaching standpoint, I think that's something that all coaches out there should do is... The confidence that, you, that an athlete has in you when they come to you saying, "Hey, this is hurting," the ability to answer what you should change or what you should do in your program is, installs confidence that your athletes have in you and in themselves. Um, oftentimes, what I see is athletes will come up to me and be like, "Ah, oh, my shoulder's just not feeling great," and they describe me what's happening. We kind of go through like a an assessment of it um, for. What my place in the injury is, um, and from there, understanding and being knowledgeable about things, you can then assign maybe a different movement for the day, or ruck, wrap, theragun, something, some sort of drill to maybe activate, um, contract, relax the muscle to where it all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, that feels so much better. Then we kind of diagnose where the injury. Maybe it wasn't an injury. Maybe it's just kind of a tweaked uh, muscle, like cramp or something. So, um, and that information that we give our athletes is something that I see on the daily the confidence that they're gaining with us is that okay these guys aren't just reading from (laughs) WebMD yeah or they're not just guessing or throwing darts at it Um, it's actually understanding movement patterns understanding tissues that are activated in each movement and then assessing from there
0: yeah and so I'll I'll, you know kind of leave it with this for the audience this week is is one of the books that absolutely changed my mental approach when I was still competing. Um, and then something that I recommend to all coaches, which is a book called The Gift of Injury. So Stu McGill, one of the you know, best spine experts in the world, um, worked with a guy named Brian Carroll. He was a world-class powerlifter. I think he had, you know, like 1,100-pound squat, eight 900-pound deadlift, something like that, and um, had like a disabling back injury. And so the book, Gift of Injury, talks about it's both of them together – talking about the approach they took. And so the reason I kind of stick with that is like some of my biggest um, improvements as an athlete came after injuries, resetting my mindset. Everybody has to go through adversity to make it to the next level of whatever they're doing. Some people try and accelerate to that with really hard workouts in and training, and, and they think they can accelerate it to that. But sometimes you just have to go through an event like that to shift your priorities and perspective and teach you smarter ways to do things. So, coaches, athletes, absolutely recommend that book, uh, "Gift of Injury" by Stu McGill and Brian Carroll. Um, you know, I think everybody should read it, even before they're injured. And it just talks about what I was getting at earlier. It's on a continuum. Like, you may have a little injury. You might roll your ankle. You might have a potentially career-ending injury of a spine thing like this for a powerlifter, competitive powerlifter. That's his career. That's his life. And so looking at those things from different perspectives can really shape how we approach um, our own internal practice and, and things we do on a daily basis. So there's that. Um, we are going to add two new things in this week. Uh, so first off, we did a Q&A on our um, uh, Instagram, and we had a couple good questions. Uh, first one from my man, Manny, is, is or Isaac, was, you know, how do I get better at running uh, hey, big guy, you are already a good runner. Uh, if you're listening to this, don't worry about that too much, um, and that's too broad of an answer. If you want to get better at running, obviously there's ways to dissect it. But right now, with you being, uh, you know, a champion in what you do in cross country and being still a teenager, we've got a lot more to work on before we really dig deep into it. Second one,
2: and I think from that too, there's an aspect of um, energy system versus skill. People don't want to admit running's a skill. You can have all the energy system in the world, and then if you're not running actively, there is a skill component of like, hey, go run for four weeks, and you'll automatically start to see your times come back. Absolutely, that specificity. Uh, Second one, Steve asked us, hey,
0: guys, how do we uh, adopt your mindset while training alone to maintain intensity? Um, Same thing, man. We could dedicate a whole episode, I think, or 10 to mindset, and specifically in the tactical athlete world um, that you're coming from. So I know personally in, in my athletic and, and tactical athlete career, army career, uh, there have been times I've been forced to train alone, and I think that's a good thing. So sometimes when we're in, in a competitive environment and we need to maintain intensity, we're using the environment as a crutch for intensity that we haven't earned. And so if you have to you know, amp up, throw on the death metal, hit the ammonia salts and this stuff to do a Tuesday afternoon training session – that's intensity that I would say is not quality intensity. To flip that around, though, like sometimes there is value in holding yourself accountable to others, working out in a, in a training environment that pushes you to be better. So I think there's balance. To get back to, you know, a bottom line answer is uh, adapting mindset while training alone. In the mature athlete will say, on some days, this is an intensity day, this is a day where I got to go all out. And you put the goal, the, the final goal, as your drive like today is the day i'm going for broke for x goal other days there's nothing wrong with a moderate or low intensity day so having polarized days or undulating days of intensity is going to be the first thing to keep the mindset high and then on the other days you can keep mental focus and intensity high by getting really aware of what you're doing focusing on movement the goal is not a time it's, I'm going to move the best deadlift, squat, power clean, whatever that I've ever done today. and be surprised the mental sweat that
2: can bring as well. So yeah. I think that's something our athletes, I see very commonly is we're more on the low and moderate intensity with doses of high intensity. But what we see is our athletes are ready to hit the high intensity. So majority of our athletes train alone. Um, but we don't really see that much of a fall off because they're ready for it, yeah. Versus when we kind of go into a peaking phase, we see at the end, maybe creeping towards the deload, the athletes are just like burnt. <laughs> yep. And that's where, you know, like
0: I'll say on the tactical side, especially like a lot of my guys that are out putting in the miles on the ruck, putting in the miles swimming, putting in the miles running, that sort of thing. And then they come into the gym for a training session. Um, they're able to hit their training session in the gym with a much higher level of intensity because when they're out training alone they can keep it more moderate low and that's fine and so what we don't do is we don't burn them out on either end of the spectrum where their long slow distance work is really slow and then when they come in for their inten- high intensity sessions at the gym they don't have anything left and so the ability to switch gears and everything
2: else is is huge for us and you know i, I would doing, say if you're doing energy system development it has to be that development it can't be burn yourself and then all of a sudden hope to get better um And that's where I see people look towards external things to kind of get them motivated.
0: Yeah, and that's where you know the whole working out versus working in thing comes to mind. With mindset, is is if I've got a tactical athlete who's getting ready for a very long selection event, um, the ability to stay aware, stay present, and hold a very specific monotonous pace—that's freaking tough. You know, it's not. I don't have any question about those guys selling their soul to pass the event. They will absolutely go until they're broke. But when I'm like, hey, hold a 205 pace for 60 minutes, and they're well capable of a you know, seven, sub-7 seven 2K, like that's a boring, monotonous pace. But the ones who can stay in tune with the, what they're doing, stay focused on where they're at, that kind of mental intensity are the ones who typically have better success. My ADHD athletes that we kind of talked about last week who can hit that high intensity – and then forget about what they're doing while they're on the rower and, and couldn't even tell you their pace, those typically don't do as well because when they get into their event where it's a very long event and they're isolated and there's no one around them to give that intensity, we've taken their security blanket and we've taken their compensation from them. So when it's down to them on game day and they're so used to being carried by an audience around them and carried by the boys, they can't perform. And I, I've, I've felt that myself before in terms of, training for, for certain events and then switching gears to train for another event that was much more solo aspect. Like that was a, a growth process for me in realizing shifting the intensity from physical to mental is how I do that. So hopefully that helps. All right, last thing, uh, we're going to let Brian talk about an amazing project he's got going here soon Team B-Haw, or B-Haw Radio, as he calls it. So, Brian, you know, give us a little recap of what b Radio is and what you got going on there and, and where people can find you.
1: Yeah, so I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm a pretty involved in uh, the Army Wrestling, the Army West Point Wrestling Program, um, one of the alumni initiatives. There's a few of us that, um, that, that stay pretty involved. And uh, b uh stands for Brotherhood, Heart, Attitude, Warrior. Uh, it's like the mantra of Army Wrestling. Um, we're going to be starting a podcast just to talk all things Army wrestling. Um, not sure how many viewers here would uh, be interested in that, but um, um, it may be a little boring unless you're interested in the program. Uh, but uh, just you know, just something to get, uh, get alumni and uh, family and friends uh, involved together, um, connect old friends, uh, people that graduated you know 20, 30 years ago that may have uh, lost contact with some of their teammates that they were closer with. You know, get them. Um, Back connected um, and really just uh, reminisce on the glory days a little bit.
0: I like Uh, that, man. That's where I'm (laughs) at in life now. I wasn't a wrestler, but I I reminisce in the glory days all the time. Mainly when I beat Jeremy, you know, on workouts. Which is never. You know, so basically he's trying to keep up with me and my glory days. (laughs) I compare the the me of 10 years ago to where Jeremy's at now. So that's that's how we do it. I asked him what his
2: Angie time was. He pulls up a time from 2009.
0: 2011. <laughs> it was 2011. So nine years ago, you know, and, and the moral of the story is Jeremy knew my time, still didn't beat me. You know what I'm saying? One so, second, you my know, alone. still didn't beat me. So for the audience, uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Um, we could go all day about injuries and and how to deal with them and and what we do to prevent and and treat them coming back and, uh, you know, just know that it is a significant emotional event, psychological event when it does happen for athletes. Um, but you know, we get through it together. That's the best part of the whole coach athlete relationship. So, uh, thank you guys for listening. Obviously, uh, you guys can find us on, on the socials at evolution athletics NC, both on Facebook and, uh, Instagram and, you know, spread the word about this podcast. We really appreciate the growth and the, the feedback that it's been receiving so far. And as always hit us up with any questions that you have and we'll try and get them answered either here or on social media stuff. If we can, uh, and to all our athletes out there, um, Keep on keeping on, injuries or not. And for everybody else, just remember, as always, get better every day.